0: Computer, initialize Holosuite.
1: On this exciting episode of StarPod Trek, we consider the Star Trek articles that are found in issues 11 and 12 of this illustrious magazine. Featured contributors on this episode include the Scotch Trekker, Dan Lecky and Dr. Trek, Larry Nemachek giving us the Star Trek report. John Lockjaw, considers the computer's game. Also, Galtro reminisces about Sputnik in the opening of space. And David Miller tells us about new developments of Star Trek Phase 2. All this and more, including an interview with Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry on this episode of
2: Star Pod Trek.
1: Greetings and felicitations.
2: Hip hip hoorah, Tally ho.
1: Hey my little Georgia Peach.
2: Hey Puddin.
1: I'm Nayar.
2: And I'm Kavora.
1: If this is your first time listening to us, welcome.
2: On each episode of Starpod Trek, we open up two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss the Star Trek and science related articles.
1: We also consider what it was like to be a Trekkie decades ago.
2: If you are listening to us on a podcast app, Make sure that you find our YouTube channel for bonus content and Star Trek episode reviews.
1: Please join our Facebook group. As we look at this issue of Starlog Magazine, number 11, there's some pretty cool Star Trek articles in here. But let's open up into the first page, that is, communications. So, we have a fan letter here. Remember, this issue is cover dated January of 1978. And the title of this letter from Janice A. Carlson of Old Bridge, New Jersey is Trek Bigots. Can you imagine bigotry amongst Trek fans?
2: No, but I mean, but the fans will say anything, especially these days. (laughs) But of course, I don't know. What did they say back in 1978?
1: She states, I recently attended the Star Trek convention at the Statler Hilton Hotel in New York. It was very well run as usual, and a lot of fun, but something happened that really bothered me. During a question-and-answer period, someone would invariably ask Scotty, Uhura, etc. what they thought of Space 1999. This was always followed by a chorus of boos, hisses, and groans. Once I stood up and proclaimed myself to be a fan of the show, I was deeply hurt when I received the same treatment. No one in fandom is a bigger Trek fan than I am. I was skeptical of Space 1999 myself when it first came on, fuming that it wasn't Trek instead, but I gave the show a chance, and I liked it for what it was doing. For itself, it had something to offer. My point is that Star Trek fans have always been open-minded and receptive to new ideas. Sure, Space 1999 wasn't Trek, but it wasn't supposed to be. What happened to the IDIC concept we're all supposed to keep in mind? We Trekkers owe Space 1999 a debt of gratitude for bringing science fiction to the attention of TV producers who don't know what's going on with their audiences. Shooting down the show and people at conventions isn't right. All I want is for Space 1999 and Trek fans to treat each other with the respect that both shows deserve. What do you think about that?
2: Well, I mean, they're right, and I can't believe that they got really that many boos for, for Space 1999, you, you know, because we, we go to cons and we meet Star Trek fans that like other shows too.
1: hmm. I've always said Space 1999, I think it kind of would have been what Star Trek Phase 2 would have been like. I mean, there's one episode that obviously had ties into the child, what became the Next generation episode but it was a script of Star Trek Phase Two. Yes. So, I mean there there's some episodes of Space Nineteen Ninety Nine that have kind of Trek influenced or a Trek way about them.
2: It does seem like it. And just and just like other shows now, like Babylon Five and, and the Orville, that, that are so much like Star Trek that that they get compared a lot. And and, and we a, love them both. Right. And a lot of people like all of these shows.
1: Yeah. So, I have to agree with the woman writing in. That's kind of rude. I-D-I-C means everything. It's infinite, our love of fandom.
2: Yeah, you can like Star Trek and other shows. And Star Trek and Star Wars.
1: And Star Wars is going to come up a lot in the conversations uh, in these issues of Starlog magazine. Because we know that Star Wars changed everything for... What was going to happen with Star Trek? Was it going to go to a movie, then to a TV show, then back to a movie again? So, yeah. This was a pivotal time period for Star Trek fans into which direction our fandom would go. (whistles) Latest news from the Worlds of Science Fiction. Log entries. A new world's record. Now that two Voyager spacecraft are well on their way to deep space carrying with them the historic Sounds of Earth record album... One question remains, how did NASA and exobiologist Carl Sagan choose to describe the concept of Earth on a record? Now, I always thought this was amazing when I was a kid. The idea that a gold record was going to be sent out in space so that if another intelligent alien being found it, they'd have an idea of what was going on on our planet.
2: It was a neat idea, to to you send it out there and they get to listen to all these things that the sounds music and other things that were recorded and li- like they're going to know how to play a record and
1: well, it gave instructions on how to build a record player as well, <laughs> yeah, which if, was amazing. Can, I mean, if you yeah, look if at, if they know how to re-
2: read <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> I mean, it has pictures on it and has a list in this issue of Starlog of the sounds of Earth and the music of Earth. So it has sounds of dogs, ships, Morse code, Saturn V rocket liftoff, baby laughter, a hyena, birds, crickets, also music of Earth. Navajo, Night Chance, Box, music, music from Zaire, from China, from Beethoven. This is one of the things that truly ties into Star Trek, which I'm surprised that no one tapped into. But it had Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good." I was hoping that maybe when Cochran flew off on his Phoenix, he would play that song instead of the one that was featured in First Contact.
2: Yeah, maybe that was just what they could get the rights to, but but the thing is, on this record, it just sounds like—I mean, it's a lot of random things, though. I mean, because it if I just runs for
1: hours and hours, if I heard
2: that out of nowhere, I'd have no idea what that was. I mean, so the people who put it together were thinking, like you know, like Carl Sagan, he was thinking that that aliens would get something out of this, mm-hmm. that they would understand this, that this is a message from Earth to to them. <laughs>
1: I love the idea, though. The article goes on to say that the sites of Earth that follow are diverse, but every day, including a supermarket, a seashore, a grape picker, the UN building, an elephant, the Taj Mahal, and it goes on and on. So, again, it's pretty amazing that that's still floating out there in space.
2: And it might come back to us someday in the form of V'ger or something. V'ger was Voyager.
1: That's right. And how many years is it when the Vulcans are going to visit us?
2: Wasn't it something like 46 years?
1: It's close by.
2: It is, yeah.
1: Mining the Asteroids. As the climactic zones subtly shift, populations and disagreements between nations increase. It becomes more and more apparent that the Earth, a green marble afloat in the black of sea of space, is finite in resources and land areas. There is an alternative, one that offers almost limited resources and potential land area of 100 Earths. The answer, of course, is the colonization of space. So this article goes on to present the idea that NASA Ames Research Center in Mountain View, California, is studying more details and techniques that are what's going to be necessary to send space shuttles out in orbit by 1985, with a completion of the first colony-manufactured solar-powered satellite by 1991.
2: I mean, that's possible, but then when he said it was supposed to be built by an Earth colony? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the part that didn't happen.
1: It says that it would be capable of supplying enough electricity for a Los angeles size orbiting city. Well, you know, nothing of this size has happened.
2: Yeah, I wonder what held them back.
1: The article... Can- Continues by saying, The conclusions reached in these studies were overwhelmingly positive. It is now time for the hard part. Translating these findings into cold, hard, government-funded reality. There's your answer.
2: (laughs) The funding.
1: (laughs) Nemo resurrected Body Snatcher Re-Invasion. Erwin Allen is going to resurrect Jules Verne's Man of Science Captain Nemo for a made-for-TV miniseries. Also... Invasion of the Body Snatchers is going for a widescreen remake.
2: Really? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, we watched that Invasion of the Body Snatchers recently. Yes. Um, it, it was an interesting take. It was a more horrifying take than the original one. I mean, there were just scenes in there that were absolutely gross.
2: Yeah, it was gross. But yeah, I mean, we, we had to watch it because because Leonard Nimoy was in it, but also to, to watch one of these 70s movies, to keep, keep up, up with it. If it's it. in
1: Starlog, what, what's the rule? If it's in Starlog, we got to at least try watching it. And later on in the magazine, we're going to see, boy, try was the word. <laughs> oh, boy, there's some doozies. It, it was feast or famine during this time period of science fiction. Either you had massive hits that were absolutely incredible or just absolute stinkers.
2: Well, not, but uh, about Body Snatchers, it wasn't a bad movie. No,
1: oh, I liked it. Yeah, I liked right. it. it yeah, was, I I liked it. It was just such... A, a, a more grotesque take on, on the original one. And I'm just not one that likes horror movies that much. So I just, it wasn't for me. Right, it, But it, it was isn't for the really, 70s yeah. audience. Like at that time, that was being more and more popular.
2: Yeah, the horror is not our thing, but it's sort of, but it, it, it's an interesting idea to have the creatures that take over, which is, I mean, of course it's a sci-fi theme, but it was interesting to watch the movie and to see how it gradually took over, like, all the, all the humans on the planet were taken over eventually. There was one woman left.
1: Yeah, spoiler. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> spoiler for a movie that's 40-something years old. To think or not to think, the computer dilemma. Although modern scientists have yet come up with a computer that can think and reason on its own, a la Hal in 2001, There is a fervor going on within the ranks of global computer scientist community that could affect the creation of any possible future HALs. The debate concerns whether a computer should be allowed to think for itself. Now, what's the Star Trek connection here?
2: Uh, Data had a positronic brain. He was an android who could could think for himself, and he rose beyond his programming.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of my favorite season two episodes of Next Generation, showing that, yes, he could make decisions on his own, and he is a sentient being. So this was thought of. Creating computers in this article, Joseph Weizenbaum, a computer of science professor at MIT, he speaks about the pro-think computer. People are not really thrilled with the idea of having something like that. He said, pursuing such a course smacked of Frankensteinism. Partially because the thought process of a human and those of a computer were totally alien to each other and can never be joined. Well, what do you think Dr. Soon would say about this?
2: You can make him, you can make him one that acts like a human. So it is, it is possible on Star Trek, you know. <laughs> and of course, on the original series, the androids looked more like real people than the, than, than Data, who looked like a human, but his, you know, face paint looked different.
1: Shatner on The Kingdom of Spiders. Once I got over my built in abhorrence of these loathsome looking creatures, it was okay, said William Shatner. He refers to the nearly five thousand live tarantulas that besiege him in the Kingdom of Spiders. Okay, so what'd you think about that movie, Kingdom of Spiders?
2: It was great. Yeah, we actually got to see it in a theater on the big screen. Yeah, it it was an excellent movie. I mean you could tell it was um a product of its time. It was back in the 70s. And William Shatner, you know, his character in that movie actually had a little bit of Captain Kirk in him, too. You could kind of sure see did. some things. The it, uh, the ladies' man and...
1: Well, he was with his wife in this movie, too. So that was kind of neat. Seeing yeah, him interact with his real-world wife. His, yeah, William Marcy. Shatner's
2: wife was in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who he, Marcy, who was also in, uh, in Star Trek, the motion picture. And... William Shatner played a doctor, or a veterinarian in this movie, so he w- he was a professional who knew something, I mean, was able to contribute something to figure out what was going on.
1: It mentions that the 5,000 live tarantulas were bought for $20 each. Now, we are wondering that when watching the movie. Are those things real? Because they're doing a good job of making them look real. Well, that here's the answer.
2: They were expensive. $20 for each one? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean... The movie of course they were really overcome with Tarantulas. I mean it's just amazing how the actors were able to do that. And they I mean they hung out and actually um did all their sparring with the tarantulas.
1: It said that it was filmed in Red Rock Country near Sedona, Arizona. It's a beautiful area. I know Bill likes being with his horses there as well.
2: They actually showed him riding a horse in the movie, so yeah. He got to do that. I mean, it was kind of... It was supposed to be a rural town in the movie.
1: NBC's Quark, A Space Oddity. Okay, this was a weird TV show.
2: Yeah, well, it's a comedy. And and you can tell that it's meant to be weird. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It totally
1: but, was. It was. But it's one of those classic 70s-type comedies with... um. I think one of the strangest things about it is they used all the sound effects from the original Star Trek series, and it's very noticeable, and it feels so out of place.
2: I assume, like, the sound effects were something that was easy to get, and that's why they used them. Yes. I mean, I wouldn't think it's, like, like they were trying to use Star Trek sound effects, but, but it's, it, yeah, but you could tell that's what it was.
1: It's a Richard Benjamin show.
2: And he's, he's a known comedian, but we saw him in, Westworld. Westworld, yeah, he right. Was in he a he part was, in Westworld. yeah, mm-hmm. excellent in that. So, so on Quark, well, well. so this also gives an episode guide or a description of the episodes. I, I know I saw there's something, yeah, something, one of the episodes they were talking about was where there's like a spirit that's trying to give them directions and it says turn right, no turn left. That part would just sounded funny because it's like, it's like <laughs> GPS is now, right? Which didn't, Exist back then, and you're wondering, like, where did that come from? But also, the show had Conrad Janis, who played uh, Mindy's father on *Mork and Mindy*.
1: That's right. That's so, right. So, yeah, yes. that
2: noticeable character.
1: And and they're making fun of other science fiction because the source is where they get their guidance from, and so a catchphrase is, "May the source be with you."
2: Yeah, I think that was one. <laughs> the name of one of the episodes. Yeah,
1: it's just it's it was. <sighs> When we were watching it, we are like, man, this is a rough watch. It's so goofy.
2: Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it's something I would want to watch again.
1: <laughs> yeah, just for historical reasons, like why we collect Starlog magazine and and want to read every article, um, it's interesting to watch, but we could see why it was not a hit, and it was a short-lived show.
2: Yeah, not much to say there. I mean, it, yeah, wasn't even that funny. It was just corny.
1: The Incredible Shrinking Man. Well, the reason why we're going to speak about this article is because the movie The Incredible Shrinking Man was written by Richard Matheson, who's known in Star Trek circles, primarily known for writing... The
2: Enemy Within.
1: He had other involvements also with William Shatner in The Twilight Zone.
2: Nightmare at 20,000 Feet.
1: That's right. The Incredible Shrinking Man. What do you got to say about this, baby doll?
2: That that was a good movie. You know, I, we just saw it recently, but also I, I saw it before on TV and liked it. I thought it was just um, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, a great examination of, of of this man and what could happen when like his, his whole world changed, and and it wasn't. I mean, it was science fiction, but it wasn't in space. It didn't have aliens, but it did have um a, a person, his world changing and being threatened and. And totally not being able to to interact with with any of his friends or family anymore.
1: Yes, and what I liked about I I liked the retro articles in Starlog when I was younger because I was able to learn about a lot of things that I didn't have access to. Remember, we had to if we wanted to watch an old movie, we just had to keep waiting for it to come on TV. Uh, famous Monster to Filmland. I love reading Famous Monster of Filmland to read about things that I never saw. So this article gives you pretty much a breakdown of the movie and then how the studios, how it was pitched. And the studios didn't like the idea of The Incredible Shrinking Man. Not necessarily the story, but they didn't like the idea that it didn't have a positive ending.
2: And they kind of changed the ending, too. I think that they had different ideas about it, and just and they went with something that was... I, th- I think it was trying to be an uplifting ending, but it, it wasn't exactly positive or negative. The way I the was way that I took she it, she just
1: kept shrinking to infinity. And the studio said, "We don't make movies like this. People don't like watching movies like this. Everyone wants a happy ending. Why don't you make a potion to make him large again?" And nope. <laughs>
2: It was very effective the way they did it. I
1: think the ending was great like that. I think it would be disappointing if he just had this magical serum and, yeah, and he came yeah. back to normal size. Because this is one of the movies that's as old as it is, it makes you think, how far down is this guy going to go? And we look at modern movies, how it's affected like that. Because look at Ant-Man. Ant-Man started going into a microverse. There's a, there's an entire universe that the human eye cannot see. So I think it's, it's fascinating looking at this. Uh, from, from this point of, there was some controversy of, was this movie going to be released the way that was intended, or was the studio going to take charge?
2: I think it's better to not give the ending that's expected, really. Yes. And and, I, and another thing about this article that was, that was interesting, it said in the 1950s, TV was becoming so popular that movies felt threatened by it, and they had to make the movies better. They weren't trying to get people, because if you could stay home and watch TV, why would you pay the money to go out and see a movie?
1: I'm telling you what, you're seeing a lot of people like that with with online, everything online. Shopping online, conventions online. You you
2: don't have to leave your house anymore. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's true, that's true. So we see history repeating itself to a certain degree. The convention report. Star Trek America, New York City, September 4th through 7th, 1977. Although this four day gathering included scheduled appearances by James Doohan, Nichelle Nichols, George Takei, Walter Koenig, Bruce Hyde, Mark Leonard, Jesko von Putkamer, and Susan Sackett, the big thrill for the estimated 10,000 attendees was a surprise appearance by Leonard Nimoy on Saturday evening. You want to talk about a convention, an all-star convention? How awesome would that have been to, to have been there?
2: Yeah, it would have been fun. It would have been great.
1: It was Nimoy's first appearance at a convention in years, and he stated quite frankly that he was heartbroken by the hate mail he had been receiving lately from fans who are reacting to press reports that he had purposely disassociated himself from the Star Trek world, and especially from the new TV series. Nimoy said he was definitely interested in playing Mr. Spock again and had been offered only one appearance on the two-part opening episode. The rest of the convention was up to TriStar's usual competency as an activity organizer. Their next event is Star Trek's World Expo featuring William Shatner. I mean, Leonard has always been wonderful to the Star Trek fans. I remember the last time I saw him in Boston was years ago in the 90s, and he was just so endearing and so complimentary, even on a personal level, not just on the stage, but he was always pleasant.
2: He was always a great guy. Yeah. And he, he was, he was very pleasant to the fans. He would answer questions and, and laugh and joke. And, and he could also be, you know, a very serious talker. And he was, he was very gracious to the fans. And I know when he got, when he got older and when he, when he stopped making appearances at cons, he still, would do a con from his home and take his, his phone camera around and show people his home. I mean he was wonderful.
1: Yeah, that must have been awesome to have a surprise appearance by him. In fact, there's a sidebar. Future conventions. Star Trek Festival, December seventeenth, nineteen seventy seven, in Reno, Nevada. Star Trek World Expo, New York City, february eighteenth through twentieth, nineteen seventy eight. Phantasmacon. Los Angeles, California, May 26th to 29th, 1978.
0: Greetings, pod people. Fan filmmaker David Miller here, and I'd like to talk about the Star Trek Report article by Susan Sackett. In it, they talk about a new Star Trek series hitting the airwaves. I would have been about 15 years old at the time and a huge Star Trek fan, But looking at that article, I'm sure my reaction was one of very guarded optimism. You see, at that time, it seemed like Star Trek was never going to get another shot at being a series. Add that to the fact that cutting the second season of the animated series to six episodes and then canceling the series altogether seemed like a big vote of no confidence for the property by NBC. Little did I realize that canceling the animated series was so they could put more focus on a live-action series. So expectations were low, to say the least. But let's go back to the article. The things that did excite me was hearing that most of the crew was going to come back, including appearances by peripheral characters like Grace Lee Whitney's Yeoman Ran, whose absence from the original series was always felt. But them's the breaks in Hollywood. While I winced at the exclusion of Leonard Nimoy's Spock from the cast, I was intrigued by the write-up of new character, Mr. Zon. He seemed quite interesting. I was willing to give Roddenberry and company the benefit of the doubt on Zon, until I had a reason otherwise. And later, after I saw publicity stills of actor David Gattreau as Zahn, I really feel we missed out on a great character. Maybe, uh, maybe he'll appear in uh, some new Paramount Plus show. Okay, details about the writers, set designers, and costume designers kind of went over my head at that young age, but what really hit home was learning that there was the original model of the Enterprise and a Klingon war cruiser at the Smithsonian. My young mind reeled at the thought. And finally, to read that Gene Roddenberry was back at the helm also seemed to give the project legitimacy. So, to recap, the article was very exciting, but with a healthy dose of skepticism having been burned before by everything from lame toys to inexplicable comics about Star Trek. Fingers were crossed. Little did I know what was really in store for fans and pros alike. So, that's my take on the piece and of the times it was published. If you'd like to see what I'm doing these days, you can check out the Kickstarter for my fan film, Star Trek Amazons. This is an animated short featuring the all-woman crew of the science survey shuttle, craft Earhart. I'm sure there will be comparisons to Galileo 7 because it's about the crew of a shuttlecraft on a hostile planet, but believe me, it has its own thing going on. It is also a tribute to the submarine, the Thresher, that went down with all hands in 1963, as that's the name of the parent ship. Please check it out. Share and consider donating.
3: Hi gang, how the heck are you doing? Uh, my name is John Lotshaw. And I am a cartoonist and animator in Atlanta, Georgia. And I uh, am also doing a uh, retro computing YouTube channel. And the article is entitled The Computer's Game. Uh, This is an interesting article. Uh, The magazine itself is uh, pretty interesting. It reminds me a lot of uh, uh, earlier times um, because Star Wars had just come out when this magazine hit the newsstands. Um, there are articles previewing Steven Spielberg's new movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and the new, uh, Superman movie, and, um, talking about the new Star Trek Phase 2 series. Um, I wonder what ever happened to that. Anyway, the article in question is, uh, uh, called The Computer's Game, and it's a look at the, uh, the state of computer games, uh, or video games, as they were more popularly called back then. Um, and uh and home computers at that time it's an interesting uh time capsule a snapshot of a very very particular moment in time in the computing industry and I'll, I'll talk about that in just a moment um the com- article talks about uh various um computer systems and uh things that are um coming and are um uh, out on the market. Like I said, it's a a really interesting moment in time, mainly because of, well, it took a long time to make these magazines back then, and uh, getting a magazine written, an article commissioned and edited and laid out and then printed and distributed uh, several months before the cover date meant that, um, well... (sighs) you know uh y- your information could get dated, and this, they found out in the seventies things move pretty fast with computers. The article uh has a list of t v game computers and it mainly talks about um dedicated pong type game systems, which were um the first generation of uh home computer uh video game systems. Uh, these had um, variations on Pong with a couple of wired controllers and and uh, uh, usually in black and white, and um, very, very primitive by, especially by today's standards. The second generation would be kicked off by the Atari video computer system, which we now know better by its uh, part number 2600. And it's interesting that um, when they have a list of um, computer TV, uh, TV game computers and home computers, uh the uh, 2600 is conspicuous by its absence. It's uh, you know it's it's lumped in with a bunch of other uh, pong type systems. Uh, the Fairchild video F, uh, channel F system is mentioned, which was the first uh, system to use programmable ROM cartridges. But the Atari 2600 just gets a barely gets a mention. and this was to be under, uh, to be uh, fair, only a few months after uh it uh was released it was released in September of 1977 while this article would have been in um in production and it only gets um you know a uh a, a single paragraph mention in this article considering the impact that it had on not just the industry but on culture that's uh that, that's kind of uh, barely being mentioned actually in terms of the computers, uh, it's uh, it's even more um, sparse. The uh, list of computers that it has here, uh, there are some that are mostly footnotes in history, like the Bally Library Computer. I didn't even know that Bally had made a computer. Uh, Southwest Technical Products was uh, was a contender back in the days of the S one hundred series, which uh, bus computers, which is what most of these are. Heathkit was. Heath Heathkit, it was, um, you know, it, it had a uh, history of electronics kits and training. So they moved into computers and eventually Zenith bought them. And that was how Zenith got into computers briefly. There are two other computers on here that are of some note. Uh, well, actually, I take that back. I'm looking at it here. There's only one of them that is mentioned here. And that's the MITS, our... Uh, Uh, Model Instrument Technology Systems, I believe is what the name stood for. They made the Altair computer. And the Altair was the first computer to be marketed to a um, a wide audience. Uh, It was a hobbyist computer. You had to build it yourself. But the thing that is really notable about it is that it came bundled with a basic interpreter that was written by contractors that worked for them uh, named uh, Paul Allen. And Bill Gates, and I wonder whatever happened to those guys? <laughs> yeah, that's sarcasm. Yeah, um, Microsoft started making basics, uh, starting with the MITs or the Altair computer, and then going on to other companies. The at the on this list, the biggest name that's listed in this magazine article is Radio Shack, uh, and their TRS eighty. And the TRS eighty was one of uh, three computers known as in the retro computing community as the uh, 1977 Trinity um, that were released in 1977. The other two were the Commodore PET. What's interesting is that of all these companies listed on here, none of them are around in their original form. Radio Shack, RCA, uh, Southwest Technical Products, uh, Fairchild, Magnilox, I think I said Magnilox twice, Atari. Um, all of these companies are gone and some of them like RCA were, uh, giants in the field. It's just amazing how much this has changed. In looking at an article like this, it's very easy to look at it and, and say, oh, look at all the things they got wrong. What did they get right in the article? There's one, uh, paragraph in here and I'll, I'll just read it out. When Lieutenant Uhura punches up her memory banks to get a display of how many Romulan ships are approaching at what velocity, which she never did, Uh, anybody listening to this podcast will probably know that, she is playing out a computer fantasy that is probably the reason why we'd all like to have our own computers. To command it as Mr. Spock does and get an immediate answer to the most improbable questions is the dream. But as Uhura or Spock point out from time to time, the information that has to be uh, it has to be in the computer's memory banks where it doesn't have any answer at all. Now, nowadays we're so used to going to Google and, or saying, hey, I'm, I'm sorry for this. Hey, Alexa, uh, to get a question phrased in straight up English, parsed, processed, searched, and answered is, um, you know that, that's kind of the dream, and Star Trek really was was a, a big inspiration for a lot of computer scientists. And I don't think that in 1977, 1978, we really had an idea of what where these computers were going to go, how ubiquitous they were going to be, and really how inspired by science fiction they were they would end up being. When you stop to think that, uh, about the fact that a, st- a smartphone like an iPhone. In 1977, 1978, would have been considered, based on its processing power, a, um, a supercomputer that's the, akin to what NASA would have or the, the, the Nash, or the, uh, National Security Agency would have. And we're carrying it around in our pocket and using it to, um, well, to cancel celebrities and, and share cat videos. It's amazing how much these things have ingratiated themselves into our lives and how uh, how how much a part of our everyday life they have become. We could not have imagined that. That one little blurb is an inkling into what it could do um, and what these computers could become. But again, we had no idea. We had no clue where we were going with this or where it was going to take us. It's funny looking at the photos in this article um, there's a teacher and it, it's obviously a staged uh, publicity photo um, for the, you know for the, for the radio check catalog of a, a teacher in a classroom with uh, with a trs80 and then below that is um, a housewife and her husband uh, and he's I, I don't, I, don't get, I guess he's uh, running the um, um, the checkbook through it sitting there and with this cassette tape machine right next to it, um, balancing the checkbook. We had no idea that these things were, and those are the functions that we use these computers for, especially the education function nowadays uh, with kids um, not only uh, learning from the computer, but learning over the computer. And it's just, uh, it's really kind of amazing to see how much, we really never we, we just there's no way we could have anticipated that level of of uh, integration of computers with our lives back then uh it really was a humble start for that and um and this is this right here is the moment where it started was late nineteen seventy seven with the introduction of these computers and um and it accelerated uh in the early eighties with the Uh, release of the ibm pc and then later changed with the uh, release of the original macintosh and started the transition to graphic based computers and that puts us where we are today but this is this is an interesting snapshot of a as i said a very very specific moment in time i hope you found that interesting if you do please uh, come over and check out my channel on YouTube. Just do a search for Crackpot Computing. Uh, I hope to see you there.
1: Here's an advertisement for full-color Star Trek episode cards. Each 85 by 11 card features one large and three small photos printed in full color in some of the most popular episodes of the Star Trek series. Only $1 each, plus postage. So it's just a giant card. With pictures on it and information on it. And it's $1 each. They even make a bloopers card.
2: That sounds good. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's a great idea to to make and sell. This is the I world mean...
1: before the internet, of course. Starlog was our internet and, and all these pieces of merchandise were our internet. This is how we found out about Trek, of course. An advertisement. Original Star Trek fantasy poster. Twentieth by 20 poster. $3 each, plus $0.60 cents postage. Star Trek Galore. If you like Star Trek, you'll like us. Longwood, Florida. Send for our free 12-page catalog. Include $0.25 cents for postage. So, when you would send away for things like this, what would you do? What would you put in the envelope?
2: Um, real cash. And, you know... And if, and if 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 it required something in change, I would put in the loose change too. And it got there. Uh, it did, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Starlog presents the magical techniques of movie and TV special effects. The Makeup Men interview with John Chambers. Now, Star Trek fans know John Chambers as the man who created Spock's Vulcan ears for the original series.
2: So, yeah, he just created the, like, the ears when they, when they made the first pilot. And then he didn't get to be on the, you know, to, to work on the rest of the series. It was just that, the, the, you know, right there at the beginning was the only time he worked on it.
1: Yes, he said that you know, before Star Trek, he was up there in his 50s when he did Star Trek. He already was involved in so many other films before Trek, such as True Grit, I Spy, He transformed, he didn't do so much horror and science fiction, but he would do things like make people look old, make white people look Asian, which was like a thing back then. He did work on an episode of The Outer Limits, The Six Finger, and it was around this time that it caught the attention of Gene Roddenberry, but said that Gene couldn't afford his price because he was already active in other productions.
2: Oh, so they just didn't have the budget because he was one of the more expensive guys.
1: What makes this man truly a Trek type person is his passion for life and for people. Later on, when he got older, he said, it says that the makeup man's greatest creations are not available for general audience view. During the past several years, Chambers has been supplying accident and war victims with new faces. Men and women who have lost ears, noses, or suffered other disfigurements are given second chances in life through the humanitarian's prosthetic artistry, and his payment, it just makes me feel good to know that I can help people.
2: That's pretty cool, yeah. And so he's got the, this talent, and he actually uses it to help people. I mean, you know, something where he could be a great movie monster maker, and he and he uses it to help people with disfigured faces. That's awesome. <laughs>
3: You're looking at a small portable computer called the IBM 5100. It's helping a lot of different people do their work more productively. It weighs about 50 pounds. You can plug it in anywhere. The 5100 can help handle some very complex information. Capacity? About the same as some large computers a few years ago. The 5100 is easy to learn and simple to use. The cost of the 5100 is reasonable. The IBM 5100. It's bringing the advantages of the computer to more and more people. IBM, helping put information to work for people.
1: Starlog Magazine, issue number 12, cover date March 1978. Communications. Just a brief note to inform you that the Star Trek Well Committee has a new central mailing address. That's in Sanirac, Michigan. Arlene Boyer from Warren, Michigan. I told you. I love the Star Trek Well Committee. Yeah. When I first got a letter from a girl.
2: Yeah, you told me.
1: And I had to rip it up because I was so afraid. But I wouldn't have ripped (laughs) it up if you wrote me the letter.
2: Oh, okay.
1: Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Log entries. No snowballs on Mars. Christmas on Mars was not very white this year. With the JLP Mars Viking Lander 2 located less than 43 degrees latitude from the Martian North Pole... Earth scientists had hoped to see the Martian winter change the well-photographed pink landscape into a blanket of white. So, I think this is a pretty awesome article showing that, well, we have sent vehicles to Mars in the past. I know there's a lot of hubbub about Mars right now and taking pictures of Mars, but this has been done in the 70s. Just recently, we're doing things that are just more detailed.
2: It is interesting. Yeah, to see what... What was done back then?
1: Wandering Iceberg Tracked by Satellite A gigantic iceberg nearly the size of Rhode Island is being tracked by satellite during its 1,800-mile journey along the Antarctic coast towards Open Sea, east of South America. The berg, one of the, the largest ever recorded, appears to be temporarily grounded near the tip of Palmer Peninsula. So it's this massive iceberg that's being tracked by a satellite.
2: They had this amazing technology even back then that could track something like that that probably wasn't moving very fast.
1: Correct. And this is what they were speculating, is that if they could somehow tow it to California, it would supply Los Angeles and the entire state with enough water to last over a thousand years. Although the idea of towing icebergs for use in arid regions of the earth has been discussed in the past, no one has come up with a practical, economical way of doing it.
2: Yeah, that we still haven't done.
1: Space Lab Phase 2 In March of 1973, the then European Space Research Organization created the concept for a space laboratory program. By August of that year, an agreement was reached between the now European Space Agency and the United States to develop, procure, and use a space laboratory in conjunction with NASA's Space Shuttle System. A giant step was taken towards global cooperation in space. And we know that the access to the space lab would go back and forth from the space shuttles. And it talks about, in this article, the variety of women that were going to be part of this group. It says, out of the group of 19 finalists for the first flight are three women, one of who have the honor of being the first American woman in outer space. And they had to go through a variety of training, including zero gravity exercises, simulations, flight plans, emergency procedures, and even in space flight housekeeping. Now, what's the Trek connection with this aspect of the space pro- program by this time?
2: Uh, that Nichelle Nichols recruited them. She recruited a lot of uh, women and minorities uh, to join NASA, and it was it was a um... A huge thing all over the all over the country she did she did speaking and went on TV to try to, to get people to, to apply to NASA. And of course this was also in, in her movie that she just made recently.
1: That's right. And so we're seeing that Nichelle's work is paying off. Her hard work has been paying off. <coughs> Advertisement. Why should I subscribe to Trek? Now you had issues of this magazine, Trek magazine. I, I could never find it on the newsstand, and that was the, the frustrating thing is I couldn't find it on the newsstand because they never made it in the newsstand.
2: Yeah, it was something you had to order, so I actually, uh, yeah, sent in some money, like as we just said, some cash, and and, and um, got my Trek magazines in the mail.
1: I love looking at them, especially the, the brilliant covers, the fantastic photos that they use on them.
2: It, it was, of course, it was just a fan-made magazine, and it had all of these great articles that were just written by the fans, um, you know, just exposition, just talking about the shows and, and why they love it and, and why, you know, why they love Spock or McCoy, and it was just great to read. It was so much fun.
1: My first exposure was these books called The Best of Trek, and I remember laying in my bunk bed reading them and just seeing, wow, there's other people out there like me that just love the show. <laughs> yeah. And I that's mean, the I, best yeah. thing about fan made things. It's truly a labor of love.
2: Yeah, the best of trek books were were in regular bookstores and so yeah, I, I collected those too. Loved reading them.
1: I remember getting one of them at a drugstore in the Hamden Plaza. That's where we get a lot of books, drugstores.
4: Hello, I'm Galtrell, aka Max. I'm here to talk about the Spun article by James Olberg. This was the 20th anniversary of the famous launch. It is now 63 years since Sputnik was launched, heralding the space age. James goes into details about the event, including the details of Russian politics and how Korolev was the key scientist responsible in getting Khrushchev to start the Russian space program. At the time of writing the article, James mentions that there wasn't much that Russia could officially talk about his life. Of course, he only had so much space to put in information in one page article. Sputnik certainly caused a panic and lit a fire on the U.S. to catch up and pass the Russians in the space race. After all, the next logical step would have been getting an object into space would be to put bombs or who knows what into space, and the U.S. certainly could not let that happen. In Star Trek, the launch of Sputnik caught the attention of Vulcans and caused them to pay attention and watch Earth. Of course, they could not make official contact with Earth until the development of the warp drive, but that is another story altogether. So how does this article hold up after all this time? It's a good, concise read. If you want a brief history on Sputnik, this works well. However, if you want more details, you can easily find that on Wikipedia. On one final side note, I found the Russian state-controlled news agency is also called Sputnik. I've been Galtrell, and you can find me on Facebook, Twitch, Twitter, and YouTube.
2: Gene Roddenberry has spent the last year and a half living in the eye of a hurricane. First, Paramount announced that Star Trek would be produced as a major motion picture, with Gene in full control. Things immediately started going haywire. Gene was not in control. The studio heads couldn't decide on a script, producer, or cast, and no one seemed to know just how to develop the property. Finally, the project was shelved in favor of making Star Trek II a new TV series. Gene was back in creative control, but the Star Wars phenomenon continued to grow, and Close Encounters underscored the new SF movie boom. Paramount once again changed its mind. The TV series was shelved, and Star Trek II was changed into a feature-length film. That, as of this moment, is where it stands. But before this latest development in the indefatigable, Susan Sackett chatted with her boss about the whole Confusing series of events, his comments proved to be extremely prophetic. The Making of Star Trek II, A Conversation with Gene Roddenberry by Susan Sackett.
1: I pored over this article. I loved it. I mean, the first Star Trek convention I ever went to in the 80s, Susan Sackett was one of the guests there. And I just, every word she said, I held on to because she was the pulse of what was going on. She she knew everything. This this woman was amazing.
2: Well, yeah, because she worked directly for Gene. And Susan was... She had been doing this, you know, a, um, a Star Trek report in Starlog magazine for several months now. And she had her own separate report in this issue as well as doing this interview with Gene.
1: And so that's why I think this is one of my favorite of the earlier Log magazines. Because it has an interview with the man himself... And you know what I noticed? He speaks very honestly. He doesn't pull any punches and he admits that it's a roller coaster trying to figure out what the, the networks want. I mean, he has a vision. He knows what he wants. The frustrating thing is that he can't do what he wants to do.
2: Um, especially with the 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 um studio kept changing their mind about, you know, going back and forth between T V and movie.
1: Mm-hmm. And we've discussed that ...in episodes past that, yes, there was originally supposed to be a Star Trek movie. Paramount went about the movie exactly the wrong way. That's what he says. I mean, he, he admits that George Lucas made Star Wars over three years of struggle. He fought hard because he had a vision what he wanted. Unfortunately, he's not able to do what George did. George is able to finance this his own movie. We know that George Lucas, he made THX 1138, which was a minor success. Then he went on to American Graffiti, which was a huge success, which allowed him to start rolling on Star Wars. It's a whole different world with Star Trek because it's a TV show that the studios have the rights over. So he doesn't have the freedom, and and he expresses that frustration.
2: Well, I mean, and it's interesting to look back at it now. One of the things he said was that he's glad it is going to be on a network because he, he wouldn't do it if it was going to be syndicated. But, of course, we know later he did do syndicated with um with Star Trek The Next Generation.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, initially it was supposed to be a movie, but he's excited about going on to TV again. And so this is the flip-flopping. This is where... The fans are just going back and forth. Is it a movie? Is it a TV show? Is it a movie? Is it a TV show? If it's a TV show, what's it going to be on? What network? What channel? What? (laughs) There's so many what ifs, but everything was in fast forward in this time.
2: Well, and then they also said they wanted Star Trek to be the, um, the, the feature show for their, for a new network. And this goes on. Yeah, there's a lot in there about, it said Paramount bought something called Hughes Network, which was going to be, It it expanded their studio so that they could include Star Trek and try to try to sell the it gave them more leverage to try to sell to more channels.
1: And this is exactly what happened in the 90s with the UPN network and exactly what's going on with Paramount+. Plus. The idea is if we can have Star Trek as an anchor for the network, we could just fill in the network with the vast library of Paramount movies.
2: Yes, and isn't it funny it said that in the article, that Paramount owns a lot of movies. That's that's what they were going to, to use um, in addition to Star Trek to try to, to sell the new network.
1: So, I mean, at that time in the 70s, that would have been a huge success because the average person didn't have cable TV. Cable TV might have been in, in- infancy, I mean, but to have a network with Star Trek and then a whole bunch of movies on it, psh- that would have been fantastic. Are you kidding me? Whole family would have loved that.
2: Yeah, it, it was an idea, and even though it it didn't it didn't happen, but just think if it did. I mean, Star Trek uh, could, could it would have gone a different direction. I mean, the, mm-hmm. it, this was a TV series where they were getting all of the original cast except for Leonard Nimoy at the time, mm-hmm. and so it would it would have looked totally different with with all of these same actors being on on a new show with an updated ship and uniforms.
1: And he makes it clear that he did want. The original actors back he wanted to add more actors but his goal was not to reinvent everything he wanted to modify some things he wanted to update some things and he was open to updates even sketches of the refritted enterprise are featured in this article i mean that was an idea of which would make sense
2: yeah, they wanted to update it, but but still have it look good or have it look recognizable so we would still know that, that it's the Enterprise. And I like that he was getting the same costume designer, William Tice.
1: And they said that in this article that the costumes or the uniforms wouldn't be much different than what we saw in the original series. Well, we know that changed big time with the motion picture.
2: Yeah, it makes you wonder, so what, yeah, what changed? Why, why would they get those pajamas for, for the motion picture.
1: <laughs> I like how Susan calls him out and said, you said in the past that you would never go back and do a TV series of Star Trek again, yet are you doing it? And he said, you know what? After you have a bad game of golf, you say, I'm never playing this game again. You don't really mean that. It means that you're just frustrated over the situation now, which it totally makes sense.
2: Well, well another thing, of course it was the money, even though he didn't exactly come out and say it there, but I mean... So they offered him a lot of money to do it. And Gene, you know, because what we heard about him a long time ago, I mean, back in the, even in the sixties when he created Star Trek, he wanted to be someone who created a lot of hit TV shows. Mm-hmm. And he, he did try, he did make other pilots, but Star Trek is the only thing that really, um, that really flew with, with anything. So that's why he, you know, why he wanted to go back to Star Trek. I mean, it was making money for him and they, they were offering mm-hmm. more money. And also the idea of having the new, the new younger characters, mm-hmm. because they talk about that in the article. Um, they were going to have Ilia and Decker and a new Vulcan because they couldn't get Leonard Nimoy, so they created Lieutenant Zahn, who was a full Vulcan. And all of these characters were supposed to be younger, and that was the idea, which, which made sense. Introduce new and younger characters who who would eventually take the carry the torch.
1: Absolutely, it makes sense. And she says, how can the captain have the same relationship with a new science officer as he had with Spock?
2: And Gene mentioned about how it's, was supposed to be a, like, almost, he's going to develop um, a friendship with him. I mean, because he can do it just just like he did with Spock. I mean, Zahn is a new character, but it can work. And they said Zahn was supposed to be, I think they, they said fresh out of, um, uh, out of the Vulcan Science Academy, which I thought was interesting. He's a lieutenant already. And it and it didn't it didn't say that he went through Starfleet Academy, hmm. so that's interesting. And the Enterprise is, is his first ship assignment. He's not going to be because Spock, who at the time we knew him, was already a veteran. He had already been there a while.
1: He does mention that that the Mr. Spock character took two pilots to develop, and then six or eight episodes following the sale of the second pilot. So it was giving. Zahn some room to grow. And that's what he wanted. He said, you know, if the fans would just back up a little bit and just let the characters grow, we know what we're doing. And he wanted to make sure that with this series that he would be in control. And he expresses that's one of the frustrations dealing with the studios is that there's just too many hands involved. And I could see that. Because that's always been a frustration with him, even with Next Generation.
2: Having so many people who... Who are who are helping out, and maybe they, yeah, they want to be in control. They give a little too much advice about it because they think they know it. Vision
1: in some ways.
2: Yeah, because well, by this time everybody is so familiar with Star Trek, and so yeah, everybody has their own ideas about it and things they want to do. And Gina does mention about how it's how this is different from before because Star Trek was was new in the sixties. And didn't have fans when he was creating it. But now they've already got their established fan base. They have expectations to meet.
1: And he was saying that he really wanted to get this thing rolling. This Star Trek Phase 2 series. That they hope to begin shooting November 1st, 1978. And on the air in early spring of 1979. Well, we know that that didn't happen. This whole project got aborted very quickly. Once the numbers of Star Wars came in.
2: So at this point, it's still a TV show. What's interesting about adding the new characters too, because when when you see what it became in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, well, it, it didn't have Zon, but the other two new characters, Decker and Ilya, they were they were gone by the end of the movie. I mean, basically, you know, evolved to a higher state of being. But you knew they Which wouldn't be back. Which is a
1: frustration of mine because I think that there were characters that I would like to find out more as time went on.
2: Yeah, and I think that, that was supposed to be the the original intention, was to keep them so that they, there would be characters later on when Kirk and Spock are gone. But somehow, yeah, yeah, somehow the writing just went a different way.
1: Here's an interesting question about the network itself. Susan asks, Will you be freer from censorship on this Fort Network than you were with NBC?
2: Yes, he would.
1: Yeah, he says that it should be a great advantage that... He doesn't have to deal with the censorship issues that he would on a network. So they would have a little bit more freedom, which I think makes sense why they develop a character that's so sexually motivated.
2: Uh, if, if, their, if
1: their goal was to be on a network with less censorship, who knows what they could have done with it.
2: Ilya was a Delton, and they mentioned – and, of course, it wasn't even in the movie that she had pheromones, but that was in the we novelization. The, yeah, you
1: had to read the book in order to find this out.
2: But yeah, so the Deltons were supposed to be a very sexual race, and as if you read a, lo, a lot about Gene Roddenberry, everybody says that he was a man who, who liked sex and these and sexy women all the time, and so so it's and who it makes it? sense. That's why I love Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> makes sense that he would create that character. Mhm.
1: She asks, "Have you had to battle at all with the front office yet to exercise the creative control that you now have?" and he says we have disagreements. I'm not necessarily saying battles, but he he has to deal with things on a different way.
2: It, it's funny because I know with, with the next generation, people talk about how hard it was dealing with Gene himself. So, so at this time, reading about Gene, talking about other people, I mean, yeah, I'm sure he did have arguments with other people, but he was the one in charge.
1: This is a great question. Have the studio executives actually watched Star Trek, or do they only see it as money in the bank?
2: And he said they did watch it. Yes. These are people who actually are fans of the show. They did watch it on TV in reruns. And he says,
1: unlike the very top motion picture echelons I was dealing with, these are television people who watch television and who are acquainted with the Star Trek phenomenon and who value it. So he's saying that the the motion picture people did not, but he has to go back and make the motion picture with these people who did not understand the Star Trek phenomena.
2: Well, yeah, but yeah, and what we read in the previous Starlog issues, they had hired two writers for the movie. that didn't know anything about Star Trek, <laughs> yeah. right? So, yeah. yeah, I guess you just have to do something different because it's a movie. I guess, like, for some reason, for TV you can get fans, and for the movies you can't.
1: It's it, it's so strange. And, I mean, to a degree. I mean, with the J.J. films, do you think J.J. really tapped into what Star Trek is all about?
2: I I never really thought so.
1: Not at all. Okay, modern Trek, new Trek.
2: Well, it's on TV now.
1: Uh, Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Discovery, I mean, do you really think those people really know Trek? If Gene Roddenberry was sitting in the room having this discussion... Would they listen to him, or would they want to go in their own direction?
2: I, I think they they would do what they want. They are they are doing what they want.
1: <laughs> so it's poor Gene. Poor Gene. I mean, he, he, he's frustrated, uh, but he would be more frustrated now because the movies won't respect him and the TV shows won't respect him. But I love hearing him talk uh, about his passion for his creation, that being Star Trek. Because he even wanted the merchandising to be done right this time. We know that in the past, there was a bunch of label slapping. They just take a generic product and slap a Star Trek label on it. But she asked, what do you think of all the merchandising of the Star Trek items? And he responds by saying his hope is that Paramount, who owns the rights to these things, will control it a little better, will make certain that the fans get full value, and it be done properly and with respect. And that
2: goes back to so many things that um, you have talked about.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, mean, it's just, it's never ending the frustration of being a Star Trek collector of the the inconsistency. So it's like, you can't blame Gene. Gene wants to do things the right way. But he says, I don't own the rights to it. That's the big difference between him and George Lucas. George owned all the rights to everything. Like he really gave attention to detail to all the toys and all the t-shirts and all all the everything. Uh, Poor Gene. He, I mean, he's stuck. He says, my earnest desire is that in no way fans will ever get anything but full value for every dollar they put
2: out. That's good. Yeah. He actually cared about the merchandise, even though, yeah, yeah, I mean, this is what he was saying. Like there was a lot of merchandise that didn't really represent Star Trek. It just had the name on it, but he really wants it to be good stuff where, where the fans get their money out of it and where, where you get something that, that looks like it came from Star Trek and that you love.
1: Star Trek was on the air in the late 60s and made statements which were relevant to the times, although not directly. When it talked of non-interference, for example, when it talked of non-interference, for example, we were at war in Vietnam. In today's era, the late 70s, what do you see as an immediate situation confronting first, our nation, and second, mankind? Politically otherwise... And how do you expect to tackle these in Star Trek? Well, he says that he wants to keep on with the non-interference rule, the, the prime directive, and that's one of the pillars of Star Trek.
2: It's one of the things that Star Trek is known for. Yes, he he kept it, and they they've always had it on Star Trek. And of course, the writers have always said that they're trying to find ways around it, or because it's so hard to work with, it's it's very confining for for a dramatic story. But it's something that Gene believed in. And he talked about how the the nations now seem to be more... Well, they, well they're even more divided. He, he was saying they're even more divided now than they were in the 60s, whereas you have more independent nations now. So we're not really closer to becoming that one world government that you think that Earth has in Star Trek's time.
1: He says that all the things, the cult religions which have come along, I think we will address ourselves to that and try to analyze what this means what the roots of it are good or bad
2: there there were always stories about religion on star trek and we know that gene was was an atheist and a humanist but he loved writing stories about about god and about false gods and finding religion and false religions the, and those were always you know good stories on star trek
1: he also said undoubtedly star trek will get into esp and the paranormal a bit more and try to do some analysis Of where that will be two or three hundred years from now. Now, See, these are the ideas that Gene had for Star Trek Phase Two. Did we see these fleshed out so much so in the Next Generation?
2: Um, It's hard to say. There, there was yeah, like ESP, telepathy. Yeah, telepathy was was, early TOS. It was. But it was also on on the later shows as well. I mean, uh, Diana Troy being an empath, but then he had her mother who was a, a. true telepath who could actually speak with her mind that they have done things like that I you know Star Trek is supposed to be more science fiction though we don't really think of it as having a lot of paranormal but I think there there is in some ways it's just they try to explain it in some ways with science but they, they leave a little of the mystery there
1: on the new series will we get a chance to see earth of the 23rd century
2: and he does say yes that we'll get to see earth on the show
1: we saw minimal of that in The Next Generation, though.
2: Yeah, I think um, they, they always wanted Star Trek to be about space. So, it, yeah, there's not much on Earth, but they have shown Earth. And, of course, now on Picard, we've seen more of it.
1: What other changes will you make from the original Star Trek that you always wanted to? Well, he does mention that NBC's rule is one-third females. But on his show, he's going to have, if necessary, and if it fits in the story... More than one third females.
2: That was a good idea. Yeah, yeah, that was one of Gene's um better ideas. Having like h- at least half and half, male and female. And and I remember reading. I guess it was in Making of Star Trek where they said that the network said, "Well, if it was really half men and half women, there would be too much sex going on." <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I like it because he doesn't do the checkbox thing. He actually says we can. Now show them in command situations as much as we care to if it seems dramatic and desirable. So he doesn't say if the studio wants us to do it or if I have to reach a certain demographic or if I have to make sure that everyone ever is on the planet is included somehow. It has to make sense with the story.
2: Exactly. Yeah, he wanted to tell good stories. And of course, he he wanted to have a message with it. But everything had to fit and it had to had to be logical to, to, to be there. It had to make sense.
1: Says so they're going to address the issue of having two elevators on the bridge and also have addressing that there are bathrooms aboard the Enterprise.
2: Yay, now they don't have to hold it for five years, huh? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, those one of your favorite s- scenes in Star Trek Enterprise when Archer was taking the shower.
2: Yeah, yeah, at least we got to see someone taking a shower on Star Trek.
1: And he mentions that, that that's one of the things that he wants to address. How do people clean? Is it sonic showers? I mean, he wa- really wants to go into the science of the science fiction of what we have to look forward to in the future.
2: And these were good ideas. I mean, it, I mean, that's just a small thing, like having having two turbo lifts to the bridge. I mean, yeah, he did realize after he made the, the original series, well, that was a mistake. How can you only have one way to get to the bridge?
1: It also says that he has some other projects going on at the time. He has a screenplay, a first draft of it, that he's working on with Paul McCartney of Wings.
2: Oh yeah, that sounds neat. Too bad he didn't do that, huh?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and it does say he had other projects, except Star Trek is going to get all of his attention for now.
1: And it said that he has the rights to Mind Reach, which is a book on parapsychology that he was hoping to make a motion picture of, which I don't think he ever did anything with that.
2: That doesn't sound familiar at all. I'm surprised that's, you know, one of ideas that they haven't made into a series like they did. What They did Earth Final Conflict and they did Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. Andromeda,
1: yep. And also he said he's involved with the very first Star Trek book that will be the movie script. And it's half done. And we know that that, the motion picture novel, filled in the blanks of many things that were not in the motion picture.
2: Yes, Gene Roddenberry wrote the novelization for the motion picture, and it was, it was a very good story.
1: In closing thoughts, what did he have to say about being back into the world of Star Trek?
2: He said, It's kind of fun because all of us working on the show find ourselves in the enviable position as writers, producers, directors, and so on, to take a look at the world around us and say, Hey, what is it we want to talk about? Star Trek was and is and I think always will be, one of the most exciting formats in the world because you can literally talk about anything. Just invent a planet where it's happening. There's a lot of hard work, but a lot of fun, and a lot of anticipation going on.
5: Hi folks, I'm Dan Lackey, also known as The Scotch Checker, and today I'm joined by an esteemed colleague, fellow Star Trek reporter, Larry Namichuk, a.k.a. Doctor Trek. We'll be discussing two pages of articles from issue 12 of Starlog magazine. Thank you for joining me to discuss this subject, Larry.
6: Well, thanks, Dan, for having me. It's good to talk to you again.
5: In the first article, Susan Sackett wrote about a set visit to Paramount Studios while the, the TV series Star Trek Phase Two was in pre-production. The report is from the 27th and 28th October 1977. Among the subjects it covers, a casting and sets for Phase Two, which it refers to as Star Trek Two. The Enterprise sets were also one of several topics of an article on the next page with a feature about production design. That article, called A Special Report on the Brackets New Enterprise, was written at the time when the forthcoming project was a film, not a TV series. A check update box at the side clarifies that the upcoming project is indeed a film rather than a TV show. However, the same sidebar also refers to the production of Star Trek 2. Uh, Do you know how or when the film was eventually renamed Star Trek The Motion Picture and what stands out to you about these articles?
6: Well, the thing about the, I remember, I remember this. (laughs) I remember because I was, we were hanging on every word before the internet and before even, you know, entertainment tonight was carrying, because it was paramount. I mean, this is the way fans kept up with the crazy back and forth of what the 70s were. And, you know, it got closer and closer. What's that phrase about, um, so so close and yet so far away because the further the 70s went the more it looked like there would be a star trek except we weren't seeing it yet we hear all this news about a movie and then a series and then another movie and then a se- and this was so exciting because they weren't lying they were obviously building sets and they were having auditions and you know they were casting and all of this and Let's, if we're going to look, if we're going to dig this out like archaeology, let's look at number one. This is, so this was March 78's cover issue of Starlog number 12. Back when Starlog was maybe still every three months, and I don't think it was every two months. So the biggest thing about, and I come out of news, the biggest thing about, you know, Dead Tree Media, Dan, is uh, there were like long lead times. All the years I edited the official magazine, Communicator, we were every two months. And at least a month of that, we'd say March on our cover or March, April. But that meant that it was going to get printed in February, which meant we had to have everything not just written, but it had to be written and proved and go through the, you know, the art people had to lay out the pages and the ads that went in had to be approved and then since we were licensed, everything had to be approved by Paramount, our, our person, um, which for most of my later run was good old John Van Sitters. Uh, and we knew how that worked. So we, we had things that were done early. And then we had news that we tried to make it as timely as we could. So we would always do that last. Right. But we still were like a month ahead when the Internet came along. It was great because you could have something instantaneous, and we had to find ways to fight and not look like we were you know, a dinosaur the minute we came out in print. And that's what's going on here. The world moved slower in 1978, but Star Trek fans wanted everything 24-7, even even then. So here's Susan, and she was writing a column for Starlog, which I'm sure sold a lot of whole magazines. Like, I was only buying Starlog for the Star Trek stuff. I like sci-fi, but... That was the main thing. And nowhere else were you going to get anything. And, of course, I think Susan was still just Gene's executive assistant, but she was an insider. So everything she wrote was being approved by Gene, much less by Paramount, I'm sure, before it even got to. Starlog wasn't a licensed magazine, so they didn't have to care about it. Whatever they got, they could run with. But I'm sure Susan cleared it with Gene and Susan cleared it with Paramount. But what's amazing about this is you've got her regular column that she was writing every month. Uh, and then when Next Generation started for the first few months, David Gerald wrote the same kind of column, took over for Susan. But here's Susan's column. Then you've got David Hutchinson over here on the other page, who was a Starlog editor, reporter editor. And it looks like he's gotten into something like these photos. What's amazing here about – and again, I remember this. This was so awesome. That little tiny black and white look at the bridge – well, now we look at that and we go, oh, yeah, that's the, that's the look of the motion picture bridge. Well, that was revolutionary in 1978. People were like, what? What's all this? Like it's white. It must not be painted yet. I mean, you could clearly tell it was bridge and step down into the, here's the, here's the platform for the helm and the captain's chair and all that. It looked vaguely the same, but different. So that was exciting, but it was tiny and it was a black and white picture. And then Mike Miner, bless his heart, who, um, was a new name. And if you were reading, if you were up on some things you knew that Mike Minor had was a young guy and sold some art pieces if you watch the third season of the original series there's suddenly like little paintings on the walls and if you were really an ins, if you were really reading your background uh, material from the day and more of it was starting to come out through the 70s past the making of Star Trek Mike Minor uh, is the one that designed the Tholian mask and he did the Tholian web effects you know for nickels and dimes on a 1960 budget but Mike was starting to be a person known to Star Trek late in the series yeah. so that when they picked up with the phase two, he was got hired on staff mm-hmm. and he was designing a lot of pieces, uh, the the redos of the sets and a lot of prop work and all that. And then he did work some on the motion picture, but he really also worked on Khan, And sadly, um, uh, Mike was gay. It wasn't a big thing then. Nobody said that because he was in the closet and he had to be to, have, cause it was the seventies and the early eighties. But he did, um, between Star Trek two II and three, got very ill and died of AIDS, sadly. So we lost him to future Star Trek. So this is why it's, there's not, there's some pictures, but there's not a lot of photos of him, much less working on Trek. So this picture here is awesome for that reason. But as far as the big picture here, look at these three pages. You've got Susan's column. And you've got David Hutchinson jumping in. Either he got given photos, and he's a little description, and he's talking about that. Or he got some kind of special interview with somebody. He doesn't quote anybody. So it's like he's gleaning all this from photos or something he's seen, which is interesting. But the biggest thing of all is this Trek update. So this is like slow motion print media. You know, updating itself. We're not going to give up all of the detail. And, and Susan's got a great detail here. October twenty-seven, twenty-eight. she's writing this on their auditions. And yet here's the update. So what's interesting to me about this whole thing is cover date is March, which means they probably printed it in February, which meant the copy had to be – and this is the holidays. So holidays throw everything, you know, later. You have to have early deadlines for – so here she's talking about – um October 26th. I wouldn't be surprised if Susan wrote her the way she's hedging. She goes into a lot of detail here about the stations, but this is awesome for archeology. span She talks about the stations and the Hughes stations that Paramount bought for the, the Paramount television service, which before Fox was Barry Diller trying to have a fourth network that he took him 12 years to do, you know, with Fox before UPN and before the WB. and, Because we had NBC, ABC and CBS and then PBS was like the educational and no one thought of it as a network. So that was that time of that was what the landscape was. And she goes into all this detail. What's amazing to me is it was, as you see over here very quickly on this update, even in the span of this one slow motion issue, things changed so much. This was like right at the pivot time when everything changed. And it's this is print media struggling to keep up with the change. As it's happening, but not give up on all this detail. So here's Susan talking about all this with phase two at the stations. And by the time you get to the updates that because if she wrote hers in October uh, from the Trek files, my podcast for Roddenberry, we've done some episodes on this and found some, some dating and some documents that we've talked about. This cover is March, March and the big banquet press conference to announce motion picture that all the pick you know, they did the backing and they had it at Paramount. It was like an old school uh, you know, it's the it's the Ten Commandments style epic kind of thing. That was yeah. March twenty eighth, uh,
5: and more than <laughs> Starlog issue fifteen.
6: Yeah, so all everything, but see, see how long it took? To, three three issues later, it took to catch up to the real world timing. But working backward from that, on the on March twenty eighth was that announcement. December fifteenth, we know that David Gutro. They're still talking about you know it's. It's in the uh, update where they finally mentioned that David Gautreaux was cast, right, as Zon, which eventually went away. He plays Commander Brant. But it took their Trek update. He was cast by December 15th. So right there you can see the lag time. That was hot news. <laughs> but we were reading it in print. In you know, cover dates usually were late. So people were probably seeing this on a newsstand in mid to late February. And they just said March. So that a few weeks would go by and the news people wouldn't like throw it off the stand. Or if you were looking at magazines and you saw a March date and it really came out in February and you, and you didn't get to see it until March, you'd go, oh, well, this is old. It's February. I want the March stuff. So they would always like post date magazines so they would sit on the shelf longer for customers, if that makes any sense. Today we'd go, if it's February, put February on it because that shows it's newer. So that's the mindset. It's amazing. It's so immediate
5: nowadays as well.
6: Well, of course, and that's what makes sense. But in the way things were sold and money collected, you wanted the magazine to have as long a shelf life as it could because you're thinking people looking at a science fiction, you know, magazine, they care more about the science fiction than how they, and the world just, you weren't expecting to run over and have 82 websites and 92 Facebook groups and Twitter and, and somebody's 15 actors' Instagrams telling you something from five minutes ago, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's not like it was the horse and buggy days because if it was a big enough story, maybe your AP and your local news might have a thing on it if it was really big, but if it was entertainment, it couldn't be that big. Right. I mean, and we are in the star, this star Wars has changed everything. This is March Mm -hmm. 78. So we're nine months after, you know, star Wars debuted and the world woke up to what a pop culture franchise is now going to look like in the future. So that's happened, but still, you know, there might have been some news about this. But again, like Entertainment Tonight became Paramount's way to get a lot of this out to people, at least on a daily basis, you know, or like the next day basis, which was huge. And that's a lot of people remember seeing news from Entertainment Tonight, but this is before that. The actual timeline was that 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 Susan mentions here, October 27th, 28th, is their casting for Zahn and Ilea. And Decker, and we had call sheets from October 28th that had Zahn and Decker callings. And um, so we know that's true. And then on November 10th, they did camera tests for the Zahn finalists. So they hadn't cast Zahn finally by the 10th. And that's in the time of this. She's hedging here because she doesn't know who it is yet. And then on the 11th, on the 11th, the next day after they were doing camera tests is when the studio said, uh, phase two has been canceled. We're going to do the motion picture. So you can tell though, the way she writes this, it's hedging, you know, they're going to do the first one, not just as a pilot, but as a, as a studio motion picture. But the fact that she's going into all this detail about the stations is obvious that phase two has not been canceled yet. So that she wrote this sometime between in the, in those first 10 days of November. And, and yet it's in a magazine things. that's dated for March. So if nothing else, this really shows you the timeline of how journalism had to be, much less, you know, it's another thing of like, oh my God, we're so spoiled with the internet.
5: <laughs> and then the check update box mentions that I looked like they weren't able to find enough affiliate channels or something like that.
6: Yeah, it felt they it, the, the service fell apart because the, the math didn't work. They couldn't get enough stations to make it make sense. Mm-hmm. So they had to give it up. Now, Barry Diller, who was the head of TV at Paramount then, it was his dream. He's like, the country has gotten, it's not the 1950s anymore and the country can handle a fourth network. And he wanted to be on the ground floor of it and he left Paramount and, uh, and, you know, within 12 years or so, 10 years, uh, Fox was off the ground in 1986, 87. So I'll say 10 years. So, um, so his, his own personal dream did come true for better or for worse. We got Fox and then, you know, another, uh, what then 1994. So just within 6-7 years later people thought there was room for a fifth and a sixth network in the states and that's where UPN came from. So Paramount got into the the fourth network, you know, but by then they lost the they you know, they they were bumped back in line which was a huge it's like a, dra- a sports draft. It's like the first round is one thing but the second round is a is a big drop. So Paramount and Warner Brothers got in with their two networks and then wound up combining them, you know, the way they did eventually. But um but this is amazing because it shows to me it's a pivotal point in a, in Star Trek history. It's all these details are awesome. Some of these things we know and some of them are just great detail from the moment. Yeah. But I it shows them thing. trying to handle everything changing just within the span of this one, you know, slow motion thing. But when, when you look at the dating, what's amazing to me is we said this in the truck files even though on November 11th, 1977, they announced that phase two as a series was canceled and we, they were going to make the motion picture for real. They announced it December 15th. They were still doing camera tests with, we have the call sheets and he did it. David Gatreau, who was going to play Zahn did some camera tests with the camp, with the engine room that they had built. This, this colorful one that survives there are camera tests and they're on some of the DVD bonus features with the big yellow, like warp core domes, and they've got a couple of people that look like they're right out of 70s Logan's Run <laughs> walking by as extras. They were shooting all that still in November and December. It's kind of amazing. You know, they didn't know what they were going to do, how big the movie was going to be. And it wasn't until January and February that they made all the big plans to, you know, scrap. They kept this bridge that you see and they just added to it. But all these details that David Hutchinson talks about there's a manual that came out that Lincoln that Major and Jean sold that we can have, we have, you can get, I've still got my copies. They did go in to make all the consoles like automated and there were practicals and they were all labeled. And because we'd had the tech head revolution they were blueprint, you know, the bridge blueprints have been out. And so everybody knew that the level of detail that star Wars showed and that people they knew fans wanted after the way the blueprint sold. You couldn't get by with the sixties. Oh, it's just a bunch of blinky lights. You know, it had to have some detail and logic to it. So he goes into all this detail over here and some of that survived and some of it didn't, you know, even as they made the motion picture.
5: Yeah. So many details about it really, um, basically like blew my mind. Um, because like before I read the Susan Sackett article, um, I'd been under the impression that the first indication of Star Trek being set in the 23rd century wasn't until Star Trek II that I can, where you see it at the start of the film. Uh, but here we have a reference to Phase Two being set in the 23rd century, and then I investigated that, and it seems to have been in 1968 when the decision to set Star, Star Trek in that era was made is mentioned in James Blish's adaptation, Space Seed, and the book The Making of Star Trek, both of which were first published in 1968. Um, also, eye opening to me about the Susan Sackett report was that it mentioned its intention for Phase Two's pilot episode, entitled "In Diamage," to probably be theatrically released internationally, mm-hmm. even though it was meanwhile to be televised in the United States. Well,
6: yeah, if that blows your way. Think about it. That sometimes a TV show um, will take a big, like if there's a, if there's an episode they spend a lot of money on, if it's genre ish and they think it's got a lot of Biff Ben, Zat Powey, like <laughs> to put it in Batman 60s terms, if they yeah. think there's a lot of, that it'll hold up when you blow it up to yeah. big screen. If they think it's good enough to sell tickets to in a theater, quality wise or, or whatever, mm-hmm. then they'll do it. And they, like I said, Batman, they filmed basically a TV movie and they took advantage of the TV craze when Batman was at its peak and put out the Batman movie. It was not shot on a theater, but on a movie budget. They expanded the TV budget, but they had all the sets built and they just you know, kind of they put an extra layer of detail on things to make it look good on a big screen, um, you know, and and pushed it and spent more money for maybe stunts and maybe this and that. But, you know, like if you think, this is 1978. So remember the Battlestar, this is Battlestar Galactica was in the works to copycat Star Wars for ABC on TV. So everybody was jumping in on the how do we make our own Star Wars craze? And that's what got the motion picture made, right? They decided to drop the network when it wasn't going to work out, but keep the pilot and build it up into a picture. So the idea you're saying, it's shocking that they were talking about the, the, the network is still in flux, right? When Susan wrote this, they didn't know what the status, she goes on and on about the Hughes stations and what channel it's going to be in LA and New York. So it wasn't a dead issue then, but they're, you're right. They're talking about it being shown in theaters, but, Eventually, the the three pilot episodes of, um, of Battlestar Galactica, the original, were put together and shown in movies. And they did the same thing with NBC, did their Buck Rogers with Gil Gerard. They did that. They they took, like, the pilot, you know, which is like a nice standalone intro origin story for the series. They did the same. Now, they didn't make a ton of money, but they got them into enough theaters where they made some money, and they thought that it would sell some tickets. You know, it wasn't like in the top 10 movies of the year or anything, but they did do it. It wasn't unheard of. And the studio got some of their money recouped they'd spent on, a or maybe if a budget went over. But there's time. Those are, are, you know, two examples I can think of right there. The Munsters even put one together. Munsters go home, (laughs) you know, in the 60s and did that. So Batman and the Munsters was one. And in the 70s, sci-fi, if it was sci-fi after Star Wars, everybody thought there was a buck to be made. You know, if it was even ha- there was a lot of dreck that was put out right by independent movies and Starlog was covering them all. If you look at the rest of these pages of this one issue after Star Wars, that was the revolution. But yeah, um so it's not a sh- they didn't invent the concept of, of taking some episodes and showing them in a theater. So I'm trying to say it was all kind of in the. It was all yeah. kind of in the zeitgeist the same time to do it to revel you know, to do it. But um yeah. but things quickly changed. All these people associated with it, Bob Collins as a director, well that went away. They couldn't get T V people, they had to get they had to get motion picture people to design it and write it and and um, well not write it, but direct it and be the director of photography and all that.
5: Yeah, I noticed that the mentions uh, Bill Tice, who'd worked on the digital cities, Robert Fletcher, making a board there.
6: Well, they've got Jimmy Rugg over here working – Susan talks about Jim, which I'd forgotten about, him being involved with Phase 2, but he didn't work on the motion picture. Jimmy Rugg, you know, wired all the – did all the, the – when I say the effects, the practical effects, yeah. it's Jimmy Rugg who has Nomad floating and does the wires, right? Anytime they had to do something with, with explosions and that kind of thing, that was live effects, and uh, in the '60s, that also included just wiring all the panels and consoles. And um, anyway, it's the fact that he was working on phase two is kind of interesting. But you still see a lot of the TV family coming back, did yeah.
5: So the other report um, in the article, a special report in the New Enterprise, a um, friend really interesting that mentions basically like holographic displays would be in front of the captain's chair and in the conference room. Well, many transporters are said to be throughout the enterprise, mm-hmm. and the tricorders, not the communicators, were said to be in the form of wristbands. Uh, I also thought it's fascinating how the same article talks about a device called the synthetic cloning computer that could holographically recreate living animals simply from their bones.
6: Well, look at all—I mean, a lot of that rings. Tr- like, yeah, they had the com badges, they had the wrist communicators in motion picture, right? Then they went back to communicators, and that the, that that urge to go to the next generation, haha. You know didn't happen until we got the the touch tap com badges in most in next generation, but reading all of that, you can see where they were already in a hey, it's been ten years since the sixties here's where real world science and technology and even our futurizing what that would look like has advanced ten years, and we're trying to keep ahead of the curve right of what's happening and maybe yeah we went from the Although, you know, the wrist communicators, that was that was very Dick Tracy, if we've got anybody. <laughs> they That was very futuristic in the 30s to have a little TV and a communicator on your wristband. So on one hand, it was, they were trying to get away from the flip tops, which were still futuristic to us because this is 78 and we wouldn't have flip phones until the 90s, you know. But yeah, so they even then they felt the need to get ahead of where they were showing it to be in the 60s.
5: Mm-hmm. I think the thing that most... uh surprise to me was that it talks about um, the characters won't need to be in person going into the conference room. They'll be represented by by holograms, which is a, you know, a precursor to what has been established in Discovery and where that's been discussed so early, I think, in the development of Star Trek.
6: Well, here's the thing. The whole thing about holograms and Gene and Star Trek was money. Because if you if you read the making of Star Trek. And if any of your listeners have not read it, they need to, if they care anything at all about history and background of Star Trek, that was the original book. That's all we had the first 10 years really. But Gene talks about wanting holographs there. And even the original idea wasn't as so much even thinking about like training. It was, they had, Gene was thinking about having holograms to combat homesickness for crew who were away from home for so long away from earth or whatever their home planet was and then they wrote that they talked about that like only budget was preventing that and the rec room that was supposed to be built for season 3 and all we wound up seeing was the beginning where uh, spock has his uh vulcan lyre out there's a little bit of talk at the beginning of uh of a and another cut scene but that whole room was supposed to have some uh, be able to be hollow adaptable or have some little hollow projectors And it was it was mainly budget and time that killed them then because they were, you know, they were cutting the budget famously every year of Star Trek on the original series. And Paramount had just bought Desilu and they were cutting budgets more. But the idea was there so that when when the making of Star Trek came out, Stephen Poe, Whitfield, he talked about that and where they were and the little personal hologram holographic projectors and larger ones so that a when. You know, they got it into, but it wasn't a budget issue, the, the The animated series has the rec deck, which originally meant it was the holographic space, what we'd later call, uh, the, you know, the holodeck. There they were calling it the rec deck, and the rec deck was just something where you played elaborate video games in the motion picture. But that idea that there would be a recreational place to go and get refreshed and holograms would be part of that, it was animated series, but also... French Joseph in the blueprints in 72, 73 showed where all of the things Jean talked about in the making of were. So holograms were like there. We just in the seventies and eighties knew it was all about money and getting it out there. And I know them, and you're reading this here in 78, they're thinking, Oh, well, it's been 10 years. We'll have them for real now finally. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's the practicality of money getting in the yeah, way. I and mean, it didn't I mean, even come into being on the motion picture. Really? You right, had you had the little imaging screen on weapons.
5: I think holog I think holograms for one. For, I think holograms for recreation is one thing, but like holog communicators, basically, I think it's
6: right, right, right. And showing up to that, a movie as your holographic yeah. self, yeah.
5: Where they didn't have that up till um, like d Space Nine. Um, I think it's for the uniform, or,
6: right? You know, the, the two times, episodes.
5: right, um, and the Nemesis and stuff like that.
6: But do you know why? Do you know why the yeah. Do you know why the uh, holograms didn't last in DS9? Because everybody thought they were boring. They, yeah, they could do it. By then they could film somebody and put a little hollow effect over them. Oh, look, they're a hollow, you know, they're holographic and ghosty. It's the same thing as when you're in a, in the brig and you have a force field and you touch the force field and it sparked. I mean, it's no big deal to do it. It's, it's some cost, but it's like, why do we have the guy standing there, you know, on the long range projection talking it's, I mean, the sets weren't really built to accommodate it in one way, but the the basic thing was we're paying all this extra money for the effect and it's just boring. Just put them on a view screen and have them talk. You know, all this extra that we're doing doesn't really add anything to it. And some might say that's the same thing with um, Discovery, but uh, canon aside that it wasn't, you know, hugely dramatic. I think,
5: but I think, they could, I think in Deep Space Nine, they could have made more of a, a thing about it like flitzing and stuff like that, whereas they didn't really do that until Discovery.
6: Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, you'd hope so in 20 years that, that things would. But your, your point here about all this talk about holograms and holographic stuff, that was very much in everybody's mind. It was, sci- I mean, they were trying to put holograms at Disneyland, you know, in public theme parks and things. It was very much a thing. It was pioneering in early days and how, you know, the, the tech was a little glitzy. And how, how do you, what's it in real life? What would it look like in Star Trek real life? How do we bring it to the screen? How do we pay for it? I mean, those were all issues to get through, but it was not like nobody was thinking about it and nobody was trying to do. And of course, Star Wars had been out the year before with, you know, help us on Obi-Wan, you're our only hope. You know, the, one of the most famous little holographic moments in, in sci-fi history, much less movie history. So that has already been a done thing. But beyond that, Gene is thinking about the ways you can use and the, and the thinking has gone beyond it's a homesickness remedy for the crew to, like he said, that sphere, that targeting sphere with coordinates that was actually built and they took it out. And that's, it's over there where Chekhov's weapon station is in the motion picture, but there are pictures of, of the bridge with the, sp- the big clear sphere there with the targeting, you know, the targeting uh, crosshairs and all that kind of thing. It was built, but then somebody went, that looks cheesy. We're not doing that in the big screen. It'll look kind of ridiculous. So, you know, the thing that may have looked cool to a 70s perspective, somebody went, "Nah, that doesn't work." But they they'd actually built it, and there's pictures of it.
5: So, uh, just as a quick aside, I wondered if that was that a bit like the astrogator in TOS.
6: Yeah, I'm I'm betting they were trying to figure out I mean, the astrogator was still down there between the helm the way it was designed. Um, but it was supposed to be for targeting weapons. Awesome. It was kind of like, let's take Sulu's, you know, viewmaster, let's take Sulu's little Sulu scope or or you know, or Spock's yeah. Thing yeah, and let's mentions- blow it up and make it big and visual because we can. Now we're planning and we have, you know, here's all the things we're gonna fix. Here's all the things we're gonna make better this time around. Yeah, and the that was
5: mentions that fox viewer would be like gone. I didn't know why they why they removed it. I still think it's a pretty cool uh, device. And of course, it returned in Enterprise for the station and stuff like that.
6: Yeah, well, they said they were gonna get rid of it in favor of having several more specialized. Like, let's spend money and have something be specialized rather than this all purpose thing that we never get in, you know. They're but thinking think about how do we make things flashier, showier, better, and more detailed and realistic. Okay. Um, so you
5: think part of that is so that like the, the audience will be able to see whatever is displayed on that. That's cool.
6: Because you look again, they're designing this, envisioning this after Star Wars. Gene always, you know, this it's been a whole 10 years it'd been a revolution in audience, a revolution in how people Look, 2001, A Space Odyssey came out after Star Trek, like as it was being canceled. So the bar for what people expected, even if people didn't get it that a TV show can't be spending the same amount of money as a one-off movie can, they still felt the need to compete with that. That was the perception. 1964, you know, they were were still having to tell people what science fiction was, and it wasn't bug-eyed monsters. The world had changed so much. People were getting more science. We, we'd we been in space for real. I mean, the world, this is such a fast-paced time of change, and it translated into audiences and entertainment, too, if you think about it. It was amazing. We went from black and white to color TV. <laughs> we went from having, like, nobody in space to having landed on the moon. We went to having science fiction not be taken seriously as a media to having 2001, and then if that wasn't enough, now Star Wars, and now there's a big sci-fi space race on with all the stuff. You know, so much had changed since Gene first sat down to write his memo that they were trying to—they were trying to keep up with the Joneses. They were trying to keep up with the times, with real space, with the audience, what they expected, and what their competitors were doing at other studios. So it was—it was amazing. And yet, originally they were going to do it on a TV budget. So what does that look for? And you know, Space 1999 had been out, and it had its—you know—amazing model work, but the sets were kind of (laughs) blah. And the uniforms look like they could have been in Starfleet 1979. You know, I mean, but it was a really exciting time. And and um and that's what the most that was the thing that the motion picture. The other thing was all those details that that uh, Susan gave you and that David Hutchison gave you all of that that was built and commissioned and paid for, whether it made it into the motion picture or not, was all paid for by the motion picture. So for years. Everything they spent all through the '70s on the two failed movies and the failed series, because they commissioned like ten or twelve scripts and were paying writers. All of that money was thrown on the budget for the motion picture, so the motion picture had to pay for all that. Nobody knew it at the time. That was now. That's not Gene and Robert Wise. That's the Paramount bootkeepers doing it to them later on. Mm -hmm. You know, normally you say, okay, here's our budget. Oh, by the way, your budget is X more because we're throwing in everything. We this movie's going to pay off on a on a on a spreadsheet. (laughs) This movie is going to pay off all the stuff we ran up the bill for all through the 70s as we kind of groped around trying to figure out what to do with it. Because that's what, you know, the board and, and bean counters would want to do. <laughs> Why have a loss so we could show that we paid it off?
5: Uh, one final thing. Um, the report notes, the Susan Sackett report notes that Leonard Nimoy wouldn't be as Spock as he'd accepted the role in the film And the Philip Kaufman-directed film remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which actually I just watched for the first time in preparation for this discussion. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, Do you know what the situation was there? I know Nimoy was previously due to play Spock in the film Star Trek Planet of the Titans, which Kaufman had been scheduled to direct until April 1977. So do you know if they initially met during that project before they went to work together on Invasion of the Body Snatchers, or when they initially met?
6: I don't, I don't know right off, but it was all, you know, in there at the same time. The whole thing about Nimoy and Spock in the motion picture was all about he did not want to do a series and, you know, whether they would tie him down to being, I mean, that was a big question mark going back and forth. And he obviously probably had a good relationship with Phil. I don't want to get on thin ice here, but he'd worked with him. And Phil Kaufman, of course, wound up not having anything to do with the motion picture. That was Planet of the Titans. And then when Robert Wise came in, for better or for worse, Robert Wise has won two Oscars as a director. So Nimoy wouldn't have Leonard wouldn't have a problem, you know, seeing, looking at Paramount and going, okay, they're throwing a ton of movie of money and prestige at this movie. So that part of it will be okay. I'll do one movie. They're gonna pay me for it. And they settled up some of his old. They settled some of his old outstanding disputes with, like, licensing. He thought he hadn't been paid adequately for some of his licensed imaging. And, you know, we came up with the whole favored nation status where he and Shatner had equal everything. The, the roots of that were all part of this deal of getting settled out. You know, whatever bill gets, I get equal. It's not it's not lead and second banana. I mean, that that had its roots further back in time, but it was really solidified by now. Yeah. So I don't know about the exact meeting point or what led to what, but it was it's all in this it's all in this time together.
5: Yeah. I thought it was interesting to see that, that version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and find out that um it includes a bagpipe version of Amazing Grace. <laughs> like yeah.
6: <laughs> yeah. And of course Leonard was at the big press conference in uh in March of nineteen seventy-eight. They they were writing the movie. You know, that's why Zahn disappeared. That's why poor David Gatros uh, you know, and we did a couple of the truck files with him where he talked about how much he and Gene worked out the character and how Zahn would be different than Spock and Zahn's own arc. And the minute they were and Zahn, of course, was a replacement for Spock to have a Vulcan. But yeah. the difference would be he would be a pure blood Vulcan and young. And so, you know, you would have that dynamic to play with. And then the minute the Spock came back, it was totally, you know, it was a, it, it was repetitious. So why have him? So he's just out of the plot. And, you know, they, they give him a little bit. It was very disappointing to David Gattrall, and they gave him a little bit of a bone. He gets to be the commander of the station that's wiped out in the first two minutes, you know, the movie. Yeah. Not much yeah. of a, you know, he had a, he had a fine career. He went on did all kinds of things. Absolutely. But, um, you know, but that's the, that's the bit around. Once they got Spock back, like, who needed the, you know, the replacement Vulcan? So that, that happened, happened fairly to... early because they had to retool the script all the way through.
5: Was Dacker supposed to be a relative of Dacker from the Demister machine?
6: Oh yeah, all the way. They never it never got mentioned on film, but he was totally always he was supposed to be Matt Decker's son.
1: We closed the episode with speaking about classified information. A variety of classifieds and this is one of my favorite things to look at in Starlog magazine, the things that we could send away for, such as a Star Trek Starship pendant, free Federation Trading Post Catalog of the Twenty Third Century, Star Trek ID cards. Trekkers, for a Trek pen pal, send your name, address, age, and 50 cents to Stups in Nedro, New York. Star Trek, Star Wars, fantastic catalog. Send SASE plus $1 to New I Log, Elmwood, Connecticut.
2: Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. This
0: show is brought to you by Hollow Sweet Media. Computer list other available Hollow Sweet Media programs.
4: Loading Hollow Sweet Preview Program for Random Trek Review, a Star Trek Review podcast.
6: Okay, well, I, it's one of those things where, like, you would expect, like, as medical history gets better and everything, like, life expectancy gets longer. Just like we've experienced in our own kind of world and planet, right? Like, it's way better now than it was 50 years ago versus 100 versus 200. So,
4: Versus 5,000 years ago where you'd be lucky to live to, like, 30? Yeah, exactly. We'd <laughs> already be done and dusted, my friend. Well, or we'd be super old. Right, we'd be like the village elders. <laughs> Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Starbase 1, the Star Trek Online Podcast. I don't really think that's a good idea. I order you to do it right now. Warning, the structural
0: integrity field has collapsed.
4: This
5: is Admiral Quinn.
4: You will be assigned to Starbase 1.
5: Welcome to Starbase
0: 1. I'm Colin.
4: I'm Admiral Aaron. I'm Dave. I'm Steve. And I'm Tom.
0: Starbase One is a dedicated Star Trek Online podcast. If you're a first-time listener, hello.
4: If you're a dedicated decade listener and you've been wondering where the hell we are, we're back. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Star Podlog, the classic science fiction and fantasy podcast.
2: Well, and it's amazing reading that description of the movie because if I was going to write a description of Star Wars, that's not exactly what I would say. <laughs> but but I mean, but yeah yeah, it's neat to go back and read these, and you're going, wow, that's just you know, they they don't really make it sound as exciting there, but they still, I mean, they make it look like yeah, you want to see it, but but not for for those reasons exactly. Computer, deactivate Suite.